0: Film at Lincoln Center podcast. My name is Michael Koreski. I'm the director of editorial and creative strategy here at Film at Lincoln Center. Uh, You will probably know that we've gone through some exciting, interesting changes lately. Formerly Film Society of Lincoln Center is now Film at Lincoln Center. And this is a change that we're very excited about. And this was on the occasion of our 50th anniversary. And I have two very special guests here to talk about this. Please introduce yourselves.
1: I'm Leslie Kleinberg. I'm the executive director of Film at Lincoln Center.
0: And
2: I'm Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director here at Film at Lincoln Center. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having us.
0: How does it feel to say Film at Lincoln Center? Are you getting used to it?
1: No, actually. (laughs) I definitely have to admit that it's taken me a while to kind of start to use it more, more in my general sentences. It's such a familiar name, but you have to really focus on every word. I think that's going to be how it is for the first couple of weeks, like making sure that every word in the sentence is the right word. Every word in the title is the right word. Yes, one thing that I talk about, I think a lot when it comes to the film society, as it was, and has been for the last 50 years, is that it's, Integral. It's it's hard to separate it from Lincoln Center. It's inextricably tied to it, and um, and that's the the amazing part of the organization because since its very beginnings, the the idea of film being at the same level of art form as the opera, as the ballet, as the philharmonic um, has been the underpinning, the sort of core foundation of the, really the creation of the organization, um, which came from the creation of the New York Film Festival. The transformation of the Lincoln Center campus, which opened up Lincoln Center to New York City, was an enormous transformation, I think, of the public perception of Lincoln Center. The film society opening up the Eleanor Budan Monroe Film Center was part of that opening up of the campus, this change of our name to Film at Lincoln Center kind of continues that progression.
2: I mean, it feels like a it feels like a natural evolution. I mean, there's two things. Uh, it's a little bit of inside baseball. We're sitting here in Leslie Kleinberg's office at you know. Her- corner office at Lincoln Center and and on campus at various meetings people already refer to us as film. What are you all doing over there at film? What's happening at film? So in that regard, um, I think our colleagues at Lincoln Center will probably it will probably be an easy transition, but um, but you know when when you look at the history and in watching all the the packages that Leslie you put together for the gala and looking back at the history of the organization and looking at the the decades of of work that the organization has done, um, we're reminded that that this organization, the Film Society of Lincoln Center, came from a particular place. It grew out of um, the the work and the presentations that one of our founders, Amos Vogel, was doing um, in New York in the 50s. And Cinema 16 was was, you know, a really special and important film society in this country that predates all the work that we do here. And so the Film Society of Lincoln Center was like this kind of, next generation of that and he brought a lot of the ideas that he was implementing at cinema 16 and and brought them to this organization and there's a lovely piece in film comment the new issue of film comment that that includes some of the things that he was thinking about in his own words uh taken from an oral history that he gave so it, you know for we were a, we were a film society we were the film society for for 50 years. And when you look up like the definition in a dictionary, or when you look up in, on Wikipedia, um, and you look up Film Society, it says, see Film Society of Lincoln Center. So that's a really great part of our history and legacy. And there are so many great film societies around the country and around the world. But becoming film at Lincoln Center feels like a natural progression, the natural next step for this organization. And we get to be here to be part of that. I think that's what's really exciting for us.
0: I feel whenever I talk to anybody who's ever been on staff at Film at Lincoln Center, they always have a real personal connection to this place. They have, they they don't just work here. They knew of the place beforehand, they have personal attachments, they have histories and films they saw. And um, since I'm talking to both of you, I'm curious, what were your individual first experiences with film society, now film at Lincoln Center?
1: Well, I grew up in New York. And so Lincoln Center has always been a part of my environment and part of what I always thought New York was about. Um, But I didn't grow up going to Lincoln Center a lot because it did seem like a very formidable place. And my family just we just didn't have the means to just go to the opera and the Philharmonic all the time. It was a real treat for us to have that experience. But Lincoln Center, you know, means a lot to New Yorkers, it really does. Um, I was always conscious of the New York Film Festival. Growing up here, I always saw that full page ad the New York Times, um, was always very excited at the names that I saw. It didn't feel like something that was for me, it seemed like it was for other people, but I really looked at that ad every year and thought, you know, I somehow wanna be connected to that culture of film. I, I'm personally very lucky because I've had the experience as a filmmaker of showing my film here at the Walter Reed in 1997 uh, as part of what was then IFP and Film Society's Independent Film Night. So in 97, I showed this film, Palmen at the Brink of Summer's End, uh, which had won the Audience Award at Sundance and had been programmed as one of these evenings. And at the time, I lived in Los Angeles, so I was really coming home to show the film. And I remember that evening very, very, very well. And it was it was in the Walter Reed, and I remember standing on the stage and talking to people and doing the introduction and having a reception in the Furman Gallery. And it was very exciting because my family came to the Walter Reed to see my film, and I think maybe understood for the first time what I was doing with myself (laughs) and my life and of course that film was also very personal to me so it was revealing a part of myself in in showing it to them as well and and just sharing it with an audience so I really I definitely know what it feels like to be a filmmaker to show your film at the Walter Reed Theater to your peers to your family and it was very very meaningful to me I you know, more than twenty years later, it's still something that I definitely think about, and I think as a as a New Yorker again, as I've grown into the industry and and started to make my own films, and even before that, I could see that the Film Society was a home for uh, for all kinds of films that I think were out of the mainstream. And for me, that was really interesting. Um, Not only, you know, international cinema, but nonfiction and experimental film. So I always felt that it was a place that I could discover um, filmmakers and even genres and parts of the world that I could discover in there through their cinema.
2: I mean, I think uh, for me, I learned about the film society before I even really truly understood what Lincoln Center was. Um, When I was at UCLA in college, I was reading film comment. Um, I subscribed to the Village Voice, and so I would kind of study the the various film ads and read the film coverage um, in the Village Voice in the 80s. And and then when I moved here, moved to New York in uh, 1994, uh, I moved in March, and it was like a couple weeks before New Directors, and I immediately just immersed myself in New Directors that year. And then later that fall, um, you know, got tickets, mailed my blank check to the offices of the Film Society to to request this. tickets for the New York Film Festival, and somehow got like you know seats to Pulp Fiction, sitting way up in the back in the balcony um, at that. Infamous screening at Avery Fisher Hall, uh, and and that was it. I was hooked. I mean, I, I live, I still live nearby in Hell's Kitchen, and I was working at the time across the street from Lincoln Center at ABC Television, and this was my and still is my local movie theater. So, it, you know, the Walter Reed was really young um, in 1984. I was just a few years old, and I just I just started coming here. I just started going to movies and. Richard Peña was my de facto, you know, professor, film professor, um, because he he taught me and opened my eyes to so many um, filmmakers that that I just wouldn't have otherwise really known about at all, other were it not for the programming at, at Lincoln Center, the Film Society,
0: and also uh, remind us of that epochal Pulp Fiction screening for well, those the, who might not remember remember what happened. The,
2: the, the, that screening of of Pulp Fiction was. Really special for a few reasons, and um, I was saying this to Leslie the other day. You know, before before social media and and kind of breathless coverage of movies in advance of their release, you might read something in print, uh, in film comment or Premiere magazine or in one of the trades from Cannes, and then and and that was the case with Pulp Fiction, where this movie had gotten so much attention, and and I had seen uh, Quentin's previous film and was really excited. Uh, for this movie because it was, it was in Cannes and I read about it and I was really excited for what this movie could be. And there was a lot of promise and, and, and interest. But then after a movie would be written about from Cannes, it would just, it would just fade away for a while. You really had no way to, it's not like today where like every photo released from an upcoming film or trailer or poster becomes like a news story that creates uh, as part of the kind of marketing push and interest and an awareness for a movie. Back then It was like you read about the movie from Cannes and then it kind of went away for a long time. And then, you know, in the case of Pulp Fiction, it was like the anticipation was just building. And so everyone's in the movie theater at at the very first screening at Avery Fisher Hall. And they get to that incredible scene where the syringe gets plunged into Uma Thurman's chest. And then moments later, you hear someone like scream that infamous like, is there a doctor in the house? And the lights come up and and someone has has something has happened to someone like down in the front of the theater. And the authorities come and take the person away and everybody's kind of milling around. And we've just experienced this really intense scene in this movie and the movie's playing really well. And. A few minutes pass. I don't remember how long it was, but a number of minutes pass. And they eventually, like loud, someone over the loudspeaker says something like, the, vic- the victim has been removed and is doing okay. The victim. <laughs> they use that word victim. and <laughs> Victim of cinema. So we're going to continue. And so they, you know, the lights come down and they re... They rewound or re-spooled the movie back just enough to replay that scene over again so we could experience uh, Uma Thurman once again getting that needle plunged into her chest. And the movie continued, and it was an incredible incredible experience. And there are still people to this day that that say that Harvey Weinstein staged the whole thing. But I don't know if that's true.
0: It does sound like a publicity ploy, but I, I like to prefer to think that it was just over overwhelmed by the sheer drama of Pulp Fiction.
1: Well, and this makes me think a lot about how the film society reflects the change in the film industry and the technology of our times. And I think about how exciting it is now as an organization a film at Lincoln Center. We have many platforms uh, that we have available for people to get tuned into not only what we do personally, but... Um, what we're doing here at the Film Society, but what's going on in film culture? So our, you know, preeminent magazine, Film Comment, is available on our website. It has an app, but we have a very robust podcast for that as well. Um, I would say that pretty much everything that we do now is is able to be communicated to people pretty instantaneously, and that is really different um, from getting just a monthly calendar and you know figuring out your way in the world.
2: And Michael, what about your personal memories? You you worked here back in the day, and then you left, and now you're back. Um, but when did you? Yes,
0: did you I've had I've, I've had a lot of connections to this place. But even before I ever worked here, I came here my first month of living in New York City. I came to NYU in 1997, September, and I happened to have a cousin who lives on the Upper West Side. She still lives here. Who has was a long time member of the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Now film at Lincoln Center. I, I keep saying that. I have to say that. And they got me... I was So I was a freshman cinema studies student at NYU. I was already a film geek. And they got me tickets to the opening night of the New York Film Festival in 1997. And it was The Ice Storm, directed by Ang Lee. And it was one of the most magical nights I have ever had. I didn't know what to expect. I heard... Oh, there's a New York Film Festival. Okay, I was a kid from Massachusetts. I didn't know how these things worked. I show up. It's this in this Avery Fisher Hall, which is now David Geffen Hall. This huge, I mean, cavernous place where up way in the balcony and I mean, that's the kind of seat you would say like oh, those are the nosebleeds, but at the time for, you know, 18-year-old kid who's like this is the world of cinema. They do cinema in places like this. And the the introduction begins and out comes Sigourney Weaver and Joan Allen and Kevin Kline and Christina Ricci and Elijah Wood. I mean, I was I was going crazy, um, and then the movie started. And I and, and thankfully the movie itself was also, I mean, it's a masterpiece, and it's it's a movie that I ended up seeing four times in the theater that fall. So it became the defining film of my freshman year of college. And I always say the films that you see when you're a freshman in college are the films that define you. So the Ice Storm is is um, is my movie. So I'll never forget that.
1: I was just thinking about that because. M- my freshman films were An American Friend and Strangers on a Train.
0: Oh. Interesting. Which were taught
1: together by Tom Gunning, who was our teacher. Perfect pair. Exactly. Tom and they're great. In, they're really embedded in my memory as these first films that I really learned and how I learned about film and kind of unraveling it a little bit mm-hmm. and those those relationships within a film and with between films.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I used to watch and then later programmed um, the film, the student film series at UCLA. And um, I used to go to go to a lot of the student programs, um, the midnight shows. So I saw Rocky Horror Picture Show um, as a freshman. Mm. Um, I was introduced Perfect. to the movies of John Waters um, as a freshman. And then I ended up just like watching so many of his movies on VHS tape with my friends after that experience. Um, so yeah, I think those, those movies that we see at that, at that moment are so are so like so important, so they, they stick with you, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so to move away a little bit from, from the personal, back to Film at Lincoln Center, which is always personal, we have some special summer programs that have been devised by our director of programming, Dennis Lim, to celebrate the 50th anniversary, and they'll be starting soon, and there'll be more information on them very soon uh, on our website. But um, could you tell us a little bit about those series? I'm very excited about some of them. I know one of them is called the um, 50th mixtape, which is really interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I. I... The idea behind this the series is to really try to bring in a real diverse audience to film at Lincoln Center. We've put together a, a credible roster of not just films, but um, free talks and other events to really broaden the appeal of what we're doing here to really the widest possible audience. And, um, you know... In addition to being uh, an art house cinema and a home of retrospectives and series and festivals, we're also a neighborhood film house, a movie theater. We want people who live here on the Upper West Side, who live in Hell's Kitchen, who live on the Upper East Side to come over and, and get Get their fill of new releases from our from our theaters here. Um, we're open every day, and so we really felt like what we wanted to do in the summer was to remind people of all the different things that that we offer all year long. So one of the things that we're doing, uh, which is partially in commemoration of our 50th as well, is something called the 50th Mixtape. Um, and those are uh, double features that are going to be featured every Thursday, and there'll be free screenings. And they're basically combining the kind of all-time favorites and recent favorites of our programmers who decided in mostly – pretty clever ways how to uh, pair up these films. And I think, it again, it gives you a real taste of the diversity of our programming, um, not only in genre, but through time. And um, I think really, again, we just want to bring in as many people as we can to enjoy our theaters. We're very proud of our theaters. We are proud that we have great projection and wonderful theater seats and we think that part of the experience of cinema is the experience of going into a theater and having having the again the experience in a movie theater of sharing that with your with your audience members
2: um you know 50th mis- mixtape will be this this, this free double feature every Thursday night in the summer. Um, we haven't announced the full slate yet, so anyone who's listening to this podcast should sign up for our newsletter, follow us on social media. The series will include everyone from Anya Varda to Barry Jenkins, but um, if you sign up for our various, the various ways you can connect with us, um, you'll be the first to know uh, once these series are announced, we also have a program of double features called This is Cinema Now, 21st Century Debuts, a survey of the most important new filmmakers of the millennium. Highlight, it, it highlights uh, a range of people, Marin Ade, uh, Jennifer Kent, Jordan Peele. Again, the full lineup will be will be coming out very soon.
1: One of the other programs this summer is a feature that Jay Hoberman uh, has put together uh, based on a new book that he's written about the Reagan era and the films that came out of that time period. Uh, so he's going to be talking about that from the perspective of the films from the Reagan era, how it, they reflect uh, cinema, but how they reflect their times as well. I. I think we're going to see a lot of really interesting conversations that are going to come out of that. Um, <laughs> that, is what I predict. But um, it's a great roster of films that Jay has, uh, has chosen, um, but everything is going to have a discussion uh, connected to it. Um, all summer long also we'll be having talks every week uh, that will be connected to our new releases or connected to something regarding film comment or one of these series in particular.
0: I also wanted to add that um, on the heels perhaps of last year's record-breaking Visconti series, which was incredible. I think it was the most popular retrospective that we've ever had at Film at Lincoln Center we're going to be highlighting another Italian filmmaker ermano Olmi and um, perhaps people listening have seen films like Il Posto or The Tree of Wooden Clogs which are um, films films in the Criterion Collection actually they're, they're masterpieces but this is really a chance to look th- through his entire oeuvre and I'm very excited to make some new discoveries and then there's another series called Another Country which is really fascinating in which filmmakers like Chantal Ackerman Antonioni Jacques Demy it highlights the films that they made about the U.S. or in the U.S. So it's foreign directors who came here and and they were sort of um, giving it their analytical, giving this country their analytical perspective. Um, we're also going to have some uh, free talks, which is exciting, one of which I will be, uh, hosting, which is uh, Queer Now and Then. This is June 27th, and that's going to be with Wesley Morris and Melissa Anderson and Friha Zaman. And that's going to be a discussion about queer um, cinema now, queer film criticism. It's kind of um, ties into Pride Month, but something that we really want to continue doing.
2: And then all summer long, we have um, our, our very popular recurring series, the New York Asian Film Festival, Dance on Camera. Uh, scary movies. Um, But it's also worth reiterating something Leslie said, which is we're also a neighborhood movie theater, and we show first-run films throughout the year. We've got uh, the 14-hour La LaFleur coming back after the New York Film Festival. Um, We've got a a documentary about Toni Morrison, Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am. Um, First-run films are a big part of of how we engage with new audiences uh, here in New York. And we're constantly evolving and adding to that, to that roster. So anyone listening should absolutely follow us on the various channels that we have and sign up for our email because we're often, um, on any given week, adding a film in um, at the last minute. And it's a great way to, uh, to stop by in the summer and just um, enjoy our wonderful air conditioning at the same time as catching, catching a new film.
1: The other thing I wanted to mention is that we have two free outdoor summer screenings that we're doing in connection with Lincoln Center um, and our other colleagues on campus. One is with uh, the Met Opera HD. At the end of the summer, we'll be showing Funny Face starring Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire. And then as part of Lincoln Center Out of Doors, we'll be showing the Oscar winner Coco. I'm
0: very excited to be able to see Funny Face on the big screen and to distribute to Stanley Donnan, who we just lost. It's really one of the best musicals of the 50s. I adore it.
2: Those outdoor screenings at Lincoln Center. I mean, there's so many great outdoor screenings around the city. um, But I don't know something about seeing a movie at Lincoln Center outdoors with just people and just such a such a huge. There's always a huge audience. It's always a huge audience, and it's just always a really fun opportunity to experience a movie in such a in such an iconic place and in a way that you really never would
0: have the opportunity opportunity to. I agree. That Amadeus screening a few years ago was. A revelation, or
2: West Side Story. I mean, West Side Story screened, you know, in the location where, um, really, where it was filmed. And I've never seen more people on the plaza at Lincoln Center. Just, just as far as you could see, people in every direction um, for that outdoor screening. That was really memorable too.
1: I believe that was a record-breaking attendance that they had never had that many people uh, on the mall watching. Let's
2: break that record this year. It well, was an
1: iconic screening, though, because as everyone knows, that this whole neighborhood was torn down uh, in order to create Lincoln Center and, and Westside That's right. And uh, West Side Story was shot right at the moment where they were tearing down all the tenements in this area. And uh, famously, uh, they stopped the bulldozing of certain streets in order to get shots that they needed for the exteriors for West Side Story. So if you look carefully in the background, you'll see that a lot of windows have boards on them and are boarded up in the background. So just a little behind the scenes of West Side Story.
0: The city continues to evolve. As does Film at Lincoln Center. <laughs> How's that for a segue? Wow. Um, and of course, we could talk forever about particular films and experiences that we've had here. It would, it would go on for hours and hours, um, but we'll have to cut things short. And thank you for tuning in. Film at Lincoln Center podcast will continue and we'll see you next week. Thank you.
1: Thanks. Thank you.
0: And now we're going to get a sense of the history of Film Lincoln Center in the words of some of the most essential people to the legacy of this organization, and maybe a friend or two.
4: I'm Joanne Koch, and I was the executive director, or administrative and then executive director, from 1971 until 2003. And then I became the project director on this Uh, venue, the Eleanor Bunin Monroe Film Center, for another six years. And I've been on the board since then. I I came to the first New York Film Festival, Exterminating Angel. I brought Iris Barry, who had been the, the, uh, who founded the film library at, at MoMA. She was in town and I brought her, I remember. And, um, At at MoMA, we we were involved with, um, with the the, with the Lincoln Center. There was a certain amount of of uh, resentment on the part of the film department at MoMA because of what Lincoln Center was doing. And the deal then, and it probably still is, is that we would not the film Lincoln Center would not collect films or preserve them. That would be left to MoMA. We would just exhibit Mm -hmm. the, the film. The Lincoln Center would just exhibit. It was mostly at at uh, it was then Philharmonic Hall, and um, I I don't know that it was all that different. <laughs> you know, it was um, the same idea. You know, it was programmed at that time by Amos Fogel and Richard Roud, and the idea was to show films that were from. From around the world. In fact, it started off as being a festival of festivals, that most of the films were culled from other festivals that they had attended, and Roud at that time was also working for the London Film Festival, so there was a crossover, and um, the it you know the the premise is pretty much what it is now to show the best movies that yeah, they could find and without pressure from outside forces, from the the industry, or from the board, or, you know, the the programmers would have carte blanche.
5: I'm Wendy Keyes. I've been with the Film Society for several decades, many decades, in fact, and I've played both administrative and programming roles, and part of my duty with the New York Film Festival was to bring the festive into the festival. Well, it was a very lively time. There was not only we were not only being introduced to foreign films that were that were appearing with, uh, with the French New Wave that had already been somewhat established by that point by 1964, but uh, and the post uh, the post-war Italian films, all the diff- different countries with their their particular movements, usually. Uh, sort of on-site shooting and moving out of the studios and into the streets. At the same time, there was a very lively, avant-garde movement uh, and world in New York. I would go to See C- Cinema 16 that Amos Vogel was, was running uh, before he came and took the permanent job as co director of the New York Film Festival. But I would go to happenings, and there was always film elements, and Stan Vanderbeek was there, and Ed Emshwiller. And so it was all integrated in the city, and then we incorporated into the New York Film Festival very early on. With, uh, you know, with this whole zeitgeist of the happenings and these young people from all over the country, combined with the, uh, the foreign filmmakers that we were introducing.
6: Hi, my name is Richard Pena, and from May of 1988 until December of 2012, I was the program director of the Film Society of Lincoln Center and the chairman of the selection committee for the New York Film Festival. I came right at 25 years. And as you said, uh, the festival was enormously well established by the time I got there. So I mean, you know, probably first rule of thumb is if it's not broken, don't fix it. You know, that there was something clearly that was very exciting and for me very precious that was going on at Lincoln Center. And I was proud to be part of it. I wanted to see what perhaps I could add to it. So I had the great good fortune of coming in at a time when, in fact, I think there was a sort of perceived need for a little bit of break with the past, not out of spite, but just because a certain generation had, to an extent, played out. As you say, there were people like Godard and Varda who continued to make great films, and happily, we continued to show their work. But a lot of them already were, as I said, either not working, working less frequently, or perhaps in a few cases, not working at at the great level that they had established for themselves. So it allowed us, I think, as we moved into the 90s, to present a very new face of the festival. Suddenly we had different stars, Wang kar Abbas Kiarostami, Olivia Ase, these became the new faces of the festival in a way. I like to think it was less a break than just a very natural process, that the the festival continued to really mine international cinema for the absolute best and most interesting and freshest work that was out there. And so we were just really following in the footsteps of our predecessors, albeit sometimes with new filmmakers and new regions. Well, if you go back and look at the history of the film society, you know that from the very, very beginning, uh, there were ideas, plans to have a year-round film program, uh, either on premises or somewhere here in New York. Uh, For example, there was a kind of detailed plan to actually create an American branch of the Cinematheque Francaise. You know, that would be, I guess, co-run by the Cinematheque and by Lincoln Center or something like that. So there were many different ideas, I think, over the years. And finally, of course, the possibility of the Walter Reed came along. And that was really why I was hired. Everything about the festival came a little bit later on for different reasons I won't go into. But I, uh, from the beginning, was delighted to have the chance to now program in New York. Once again, I have to say that programming is very site-specific. So you have to really, even though I'm a New Yorker and I you know, was already living in New York again, it took a while, I think, for us to really figure out what our role was. I mean, we had, you know, I never think of them as competitors, but colleagues at other institutions that were doing excellent work.
3: My name is Dennis Lim. I'm the director of programming at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Yeah, I think, you know, we've obviously come a long way since from... <laughs> from not having a venue to begin with to having three cinemas that are open every day of the year. Um, And I think, you know, the the festival is kind of a microcosm of what I think we try to achieve on a year-round basis, which is to provide, um, you know, it's to provide a very curated slate, uh, but also a very diverse one, you know, to to showcase different types of films, uh, to show um, films from, all over the world um, to do a balance of uh, important filmmakers working today, um, with you know looks back at um, film history with our retrospectives. Um, to, again, to show you know, to balance um, you know populist work with experimental work, um, and to, to to come up with a. Th- I think this is one of the challenges of programming is to be at the same time like diverse but also coherent. You want to have you know to put forward. This is an idea of you know a. a, a your your program should add up to, like, an idea of, of cinema, of what matters.
7: I'm Kent Jones, director of the New York Film Festival. What separates the, the New York Film Festival from other festivals is the idea of curation. I mean, there are other festivals that are, um, that are curatorially based. Uh, there's the Viennale. There's um, Locarno, by and large. Um, but... You know, the thing is that it's never been a festival that's about anything but that. It is always about the selection of films because someone has felt these are films that, you know, have moved us the most and we need to share them with other people. But um it was it was eclectic and it, it, there were um some runs, mostly the repertory uh series, and um it was uh I Oliver Lotsky and I went to Central Asia and we got a grant from um the Open Society. And um, programmed a series of films from the former Soviet republics, and uh, that was great. Um, So it was very. And then there were the dedicated programs as well. You know, there was there was um, Human Rights Watch. There was um, Spanish Cinema Now. There was the African Film Festival. You know, so. Uh, But really, um, there was a pretty, much more of a separation between the Walter Reed and the New York Film Festival in those days.
8: Hi, I'm Tiffany Vasquez, and I currently oversee the whole film content curation at Giphy. And for two years, I was a Saturday daytime host on Turner Classic Movies. My first experience ever at Film Society um, was a retrospective of John Hughes' movies. And Molly Ringwald sat in the row in front of me, and it was really hard to watch Pretty in Pink without staring at her the whole time. And later she had said that it was the first time she saw the movie since it came out. So um, all the things that she must have been going through emotionally while watching this film – everything that she's been through in her life all the decades that have passed the fact that she didn't have a normal teenagehood and the emotional moments throughout the movie did they affect her the same way did other moments affect her in a way that they didn't before so it was incredible to have that and that was the first time i'd been to film society and i knew that i just needed to go back for every (laughs) event
0: Please enjoy some highlights from our 50th anniversary gala from this week. It was an amazing, amazing time, and we wanted to share some of that with you. First up, Tilda Swinton.
9: Good evening. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. I've always loved that name, I have to confess. Uh, It's like a super fancy but a little bit punk chef taking up a residency in a grand old ballroom. It's a pop-up poster store in a disused bank. It's a living snail in a mighty old shell. Now you see it, now you don't. It's the name of a beacon, a lifeboat, a spaceship, a rocking occasional underground dive. I love the way in which the film society is always carried in its backpack the name of this august location, suavely merely one amongst countless other film societies blooming across this country here and across this globe of ours. Just this one here in Lincoln, uptown, downright left field, right thinking center. (laughs) In one way, this is perfectly accurate. Film fans sprout and gather wherever humans touch and wonder and share a partiality for not only popcorn, milk duds, and raisinettes, but also the shared dreams and fantasies that cinema inspires and feeds. There are film-adoring clusters from and in every corner of the planet, hunkered under ice roofs, pinning sheets to thorn trees in the bush, in college cellars, and even between suburban patios and pools, and even in disused bingo halls, in villages, and on wheels, pulled into glens and onto the shores of lochs in the Scottish Highlands. But this film society is, of course, a little different than most. This is one megawattage of a lighthouse on this fabulous piece of turf. It is, for so many of us, an invaluable oasis. Perhaps beyond society, even. Perhaps more like a bloodstream. Perhaps just film at Lincoln Center. Like donuts at the corner of 8th and 21st, or sushi on sunset. An essential resource. A one-stop shop. An emergency responder. Here, under this roof, a culture thrives. A spirit and a pulse. I've been aware of film at Lincoln Center for over 30 years. I've been here like the beginning of a vernacular joke with an Englishman, a Scotsman, a Hungarian and somebody from Akron, Ohio. (laughs) I came here first in 1987 with Derek Jarman. We brought The Last of England, the first of the home movie features we made blowing up Super 8 and documenting our days in the ramshackle plague pit of Thatcher's triumphal march. Uh, Rupert Murdoch's Sunday Times savaged the film with two full pages of a horrified rant by Norman Stone, who a cultural critic, uh, outraged at the thought of such a film made partly with taxpayers' money, representing the United Kingdom abroad. I will never forget the young American in the audience here who painstakingly spelled out to me after its screening in this very room the coherent narrative so clear to him in this neurasthenic scrapbook of a film. His relaxedness with its form as the overall welcome we received here was something remarkable to us. Not only were we listened to and heard, we felt understood, accepted as dealing in the same beans. It's all about fellowship. It's all about being in the same boat, heading for the same light. To call this home from home would be stretching things a little. In our house, films are screened against a kitchen wall uh, with considerably less capacity than this room. And here there is, all in all, far less dog hair. But I can call it uh, a place of real safety, of comfort and joy, stocked with comradeship and shared powers. And peopled, and this is the important thing, wall to wall. By aliens, aliens from all conceivable planets, making for these shores and finding this lighthouse winking at us, calling us in. I'm honored to be asked to speak here tonight, seeing as I feel myself to be very much a representative of the children's table, but then it occurred to me as we gathered here this evening that under this roof, even in this fantabulous company, there cannot be a one of us who doesn't actually feel that way. Lincoln Center is our temple and all of us count ourselves lucky to sweep her floors and light her candles. She makes adolescent film fans of us all. The gala here customarily orders, uh, honors an individual luminary whom we carry high above us as reason to celebrate and believe in the cinema as the never-ending, ageless, limber, graceful old glory she is. This year, We honor the film society herself, for her protection, her vision, her counsel, her wisdom, her guidance, for her light in the dark. I say yes, yes, yes to this motion. Long live film at Lincoln Center. Happy, happy birthday. I love this band. I'm buying all their records.
0: (laughs) Next up, we have John Waters.
10: Fifty years of negative influence. <laughs> Fifty years of feel-bad treats from lunatic movie directors all over the world. Thank you, Film Society of Lincoln Center. Without you, I'd never have known about the bitter tears of Petra Van Kant. Would never have been introduced to the excitement and thrills of Gaspar Noe's Cinema Shockers or have personally met the best working director in the whole world today, Pedro. My life would be less meaningful without seeing The Wedding Trough, that obscure Belgian art exploitation film about the farmer who rolls around in the mud with his favorite pig and then fucks her, in an artistic way. Ah, <laughs> uh, we had screenplays back in 1974, didn't we? Would I have ever realized I accidentally made Dogma 95 movies early in my career without you importing the wonderful humor of Lars von Trier? (laughs) And let's not forget Moon in the Gutter. So awful, so great, so cinematically wrong, yet deserving to be shown. Thank you, new directors, new film series. Thank you, Museum of Modern Art. Moon in the Gutter. I still say that title out loud every day for good luck, all because of you. <laughs> and Solo, God, Solo. I bow down to the brave programmer who decided to include Pasolini's obscene and beautiful swan song in the festival. What a great night that was right here at Alice Tully Hall for cinema-deranged moviegoers like you like me, like all the Film Society's loyal subscribers. (laughs) Film Comment Magazine, thank you too for putting Edith Massey on the cover when Female Trouble came out. Even I was shocked. (laughs) I had read about Goddard for years in your hollowed pages, so when I later interviewed him for another film magazine, I had not only the knowledge but the nerve to ask this great auteur three stupid questions for a genius as the sidebar was headlined. You should have heard Godard's appalled voice when some poor publicist got him on the phone with me and I demanded to know, what's your favorite color? He stammered, he stuttered, but finally answered angrily in English, Blue! Blue. I'm still free associating from that memory with Godard tonight. Blue is in Betty Blue. Blue is in the Blue is the Warmest Color. Blue as in Derek Jarman's Blue, all shown by the Film Society of Lincoln Center blue as I felt when later in my career, Film Comment gave me the meanest review I ever got in my entire life, and I still didn't cancel my subscription. <laughs> Thank you, rendezvous, rendezvous with French Cinema, for letting me host that screening of Marita, Margarita Duraz, The Truck, when we actually got a big crowd. Maybe bigger than the 25 or 30 ticket buyers who actually saw the film nationally on its limited, very limited theatrical release. <laughs> Let's do it again. Let them in free and make them pay to get out.
4: <laughs> we'll,
10: we'll have Margarita Duran look-alike contests. <laughs> Win a date with Gerard Depardieu audience members could shout out the dialogue like they do at Rocky Horror Picture Show. It would be an art house smash. And good lord, I got to interview Isabel Huppert on stage at the Walter Reed Theater because of this kind, kind institution. Where else could a boy from Lutherville, Maryland get to meet his favorite actress in the world? She must have enjoyed it too because just last week she commented in the press that she wished she had worked with me in the past, but maybe she just wasn't fat enough. See, serious dialogues on film are born here. (laughs) Nobody has to bother scheduling a memorial for me after I die because I already got to hear all the nice things people might say about my career when I was still alive and had a retrospective at the nearby Walter Reed Theater hag in a black leather jacket. An eight millimeter short I made in 1964 was only shown once in a beatnik coffee house in Baltimore, yet here it was, now unspooling, in a lobby in Lincoln Center. (laughs) How could that be? And what an honor it was to see the last known 16-millimeter print of Mondo Trasho get stuck in the projector and burn up right before the (laughs) Lincoln Society audience eyes that wonderful night in 2014. Congratulations, Film Society of Lincoln Center. Art, filth, you make it all possible for me to be the same and the next generation of nutcase directors eagerly await your stamp of approval. I am proud to be a member of the newly named film at Lincoln Center, Cult. Just tell me what movies to see, and I'll blindly obey your orders. You should too, or you're going to go to film hell. Thank you.
0: Next up, we have Dee Reese the director of Pariah and Mudbound.
11: Is a vision test. You know the kind. You go for your annual eye exam, and your optometrist presents you with a progression of successively similar images and asks you, which is better, one or two, three or four? Is one sharper? Which is better? This is a vision test. We as an industry are constantly confronted with the which is better question. And we must be vigilant against and quick to correct the tendency toward myopia when it comes to define who is a filmmaker and what is a film. For instance, when synchronized sound first came to motion pictures, those who built their career in silent films decried the innovation. The microphone, colon, terror of the studios. That was the cover of a 1929 cover of Photoplay magazine. Similarly, the long and challenging technological evolution from color photography over black and white photography led some cinematographers and actors to decry the innovation, saying that it was creatively restrictive and too time consuming because of the new lighting requirements. Background, studio executives fretted at the strain on the budgets. Then in the late 90s and the early aughts, the same refrain of fear and skepticism bubbled up around the transition from digital photography over celluloid. But We have to change all our projectors, the theater owner said. We will only consider submissions on 35 millimeter, one popular festival decreed. Now, of course, we understand that all those technological innovations did not undo cinema, did not dilute the imagination of filmmakers in all the myriad ways that the naysayers said it would, but those developments in fact fueled creative productivity allowed us to reach new audiences, and allowed filmmakers to strive for more, ambitious, for more ambitious storytelling than ever before. Which brings us to today, where history repeats itself in the renewed drumbeat of skepticism and doubt and the near-hysterical debate about how and where we view films. So, I think we know how this goes, right? This is a vision test. But before we leap ahead to the inevitable conclusion, perhaps a little personal context might give us a clearer lens to which to view it, In 1946, my grandparents were were spirited 21-year-olds. They were alive. They were in love. They were courting. The postman always rings twice was all the rage, or maybe it was the big sleep as the latest big-screen sensation. But for them, going to a show at the local theater was fraught with the indignity of racist insults from the ticket taker or the side-door colored entrance or segregated theater entirely. So while audiences were swooning over Bogart or falling in love with Lauren Bacall, my grandparents kept one eye on the silver screen and one eye on the exit door, through which hostile ushers might burst at any moment, eager to eject them from the public entertainment space. 1961, Nashville, Tennessee, when my own father was 12 years old, that imaginative, inquisitive age which where imaginations are most fecund, and when we were in our so called golden age of cinema. There's West Side Story, La Dolce Vida, The Hustler. But my dad was not allowed to watch those films on the main floor with the rest of the patrons. He and his friends were relegated to the sticky balconies where there's crushed popcorn and spilled sodas because the theater owners didn't clean so well where the colored sat. So if we open our peripheral vision, we see that the golden age of cinema was not golden for all. We see that the magic of the silver screen was not magical for all. This is a vision test. Lest we mistake this as a historical problem, Long ago solved with legislative solutions? Let's fast forward to between 1995 and 2000, my own college years when I was a 20 year old at Florida Annam University in Tallahassee, Florida. No, there were no whites only signs. No, there were no humiliating backdoor slogs to sticky balconies. But on the crest of hard fought cultural breakthroughs like Love Jones or How Stella Got Her Groove Back or Love and Basketball, discriminatory theatrical practices continued in the form of deceptive ticket sales, or denied access completely. So, for example, you'd go and pay for a ticket to see dead presidents and be given a ticket that said Jumanji instead. Or you'd ask for a ticket to Rosewood and be told, we're sorry, that movie's all sold out. Some of us would be discouraged and leave. Others of us would do a little covert renaissance, buy a ticket to another movie screening at the same time and see that the supposedly sold-out theater was half empty or maybe even completely empty. These blatantly discriminatory practices serve to discourage black theater patrons and to artificially depress box office numbers for predominantly black black cast films, which feud the falsehood that black films don't sell. This racist color blindness proved that theater owners were so fixated on the brown of our skin, they couldn't even see the green of our dollars. This is a vision test. But lest we think this is a Southern problem, let's fast forward one last time to upstate New York. 2015, my wife and I went to see Straight Out of Compton at our local mall, Megaplex. And we were there, we were met with an atypical aggressive police presence. Squad cars were parked outside the theater. Uniformed officers stood behind the ticket takers citing safety concerns. My wife and I were randomly selected for a random bag check, even though the white patrons just ahead of us and just behind us were not. Some even going to see the same movie. So the white patrons were seen as safe, and the black patrons were seen as not safe, all depending on one's particular social astigmatism, I guess. No, there are no white-only signs, but there are sometimes other signs, like no hoodies, no baseball caps, no baggy jeans. Selectively enforced policies, of course, depending on whose head the baseball cap rests. Less subtle, perhaps, depending on how clear your vision is. So today, what seems to be a benign aesthetic argument about how and where we view our films is actually a malignant, blindness to, a malignant blindness to social context, a willfully unfocused nostalgia freighted with historical baggage and present realities we have yet to unpack. Which is better, one or two, three or four? This is a vision test, which brings us, hopefully, delicately, gratefully to tonight's occasion, to the celebration of the Film Society of Lincoln Center, an institution that shows us clearly the importance of unobstructed vision and the power of multiple perspectives. I'll never forget when New Directors New Films programmed my film Pariah back in 2011. It was a small, independent film about a lesbian teenager in Brooklyn, a film that could easily be overlooked by an Upper West Side audience. So it was a bold, far-sighted vision that those programmers chose to screen that film in the Walter Reed Theater. I can still remember the audience's enthusiastic response, and I can still remember the response to Mudbound six years later. Films that traditional studios shied away from financing and that large theater chains declined to screen. So I'm overcome at the thought of the audience connections that would not have been possible without the clear-sighted intervention of the Film Society of Lincoln Center for myself and for other independent filmmakers. So it's here in its 50th anniversary of being, it's all of our honor to applaud this amazing organization, an organization that is an example of the broader industry could and should be, an organization that expands our periphery, sharpens our focus, and challenges all of us to keep our eyes open. Thank you.
0: And finally, closing out the night, we had Martin Scorsese.
12: Wow. Huh. I am very proud to be here on this stage tonight. Um, but I also have to clarify something. My old friend Kent Jones had um, uh, happened to mention in one of the clips you saw earlier that I was at the first New York Film Festival. Actually, I wasn't. I made it here the second year. The, uh, the first year, I simply couldn't afford it. There were students, you know, 20 years old, and, you know, there's no way you can afford it. But I remember so well um, looking awestruck at that first lineup of the films that were going to be shown here at the first New York Film Festival. And I was praying so hard that the pictures would get distribution. That's the only way you could really see them. And uh, mainly, though, I was so thankful for such a celebration of cinema to have come to this city. Because, you know, it really meant something. I, I To have a, like a campus, let's call it that, uh, like Lincoln Center, built here in New York, devoted to dance and music and, and theater uh, and to have, in classical music, and to have um, the cinema included among the art forms represented. And as you know, if, uh, or if you don't know, uh, that was not commonplace at the time. I mean, yes, there were, You know, there were repertory theaters. Films were playing all the time. There were art theaters. There was uh, um, repertory, as I said, Museum Modern Art. Uh, Avant garde films, though, were mainly shown in uh, storefronts downtown and in people's lofts. Uh, So, have cinema included here? This was not commonplace at the time because there was this vast divide between high and low culture, high and low. And cinema, the movies, Uh, was right down at the very bottom of the lull, sharing the stage with comic books and pop songs, bubblegum pop songs, you know. So to see film, to see film and cinema elevated in this way, uh, in this new cultural institution, was amazing, and it meant everything to us, burning with the obsession to make films at that time at the age of 19 and 20. And that first year, I mean, there was, um, let's go through it. Um, Trial of Joan of Arc, Rob, Robert Bresson, uh, Kobayashi's film Harakiri, Baravento and Knife in the Water, uh, the first pictures made by uh, Rocha and Roman Polanski. Uh, Ozu's last picture, An Autumn Afternoon, there was Hallelujah the Hills by Adolphus Mikas, and um, uh, uh, Le Jolie May by Chris Marker. Um, and the, uh, terrific, uh, The Fiancés by Hermana Olmi, Jean-Pierre Melville's um, boxing picture, uh, uh, Magnet of Doom, The Servant by Joseph Lossi, written by Harold Pinter, of course, Muriel by Alain Rene, and there was um, an omnibus film called Rogopag, and nobody understood what the hell does Rogopag mean, you know, but what did that mean? And I, I, it meant four short films, Directed by Roberto Rossellini, Jean-Luc Godard, Pier Paolo Pasolini, and Ugo Gregoretti. So you had Ro, Go, Pac. <laughs> <laughs> it was a revelation. And the, and the opening night picture was Luis Buñuel's The Exterminating Angel. It's one of, the, one of his greatest pictures. And that was, that was the opening night. I mean, it's still stunning and shocking for me to, uh, to remember it and to think about it. And I was so sad I, couldn't, I didn't have the money to be here in that opening night. It was something. Um, That extraordinary first festival, uh, it uh, was, that was really the first seed that was planted here. And it grew into a remarkable organization that we're celebrating here tonight. Um, The New York Film Festival, New Directors, New Films, Film Comment, which has always been one of the um, only really indispensable magazines devoted to film criticism and appreciation, uh, the opening of the Walter Reed, and of course, then the Film Center. And you know, the seed was planted, and the tree grew. As I said, I was here for the second festival in 1964, when I was, uh, actually that festival was amazing. I was like marked permanently by Bertolucci's Before the Revolution. And I watched the film in the press screening, because I had a couple of student films here, you know, and I was allowed in the press screening. And I'll never forget uh, him. It was Avery Fisher Hall at the time, in the lobby, in the, uh, the, uh, uh, the gigantic lobby with that big sculpture. And Bertolucci came out after the press screening. And I'll never forget him and the press moving around him, getting pictures, and there he was. The look on his face, straightening his tie, and buttoning up that blazer. He had arrived. International filmmaker. Um, a source of undying, undying inspiration. Um, I was here in 68, actually, with a film in the big hall uh, called The Big Shave. And that was the year of The Red and the White by Nicolas Janzo, uh Bresson's Mouchette, and uh, two films by Godard, Two or Three Things I Know About Her and Weekend, and Faces by John Cassavetes. Um, big st- uh, the Big Shave is a five-minute film, and it had, it was kind of, uh, had a, kind of notorious reputation. Um, And at the last minute, I was having dinner with Jay Cox and Verna Bloom, and uh, it was going to be shown in one film. I forget what it was, but at the last minute, Richard Roud decided that uh, he was going to show it uh, that night. He said, so you got to come over right away. (laughs) So we dropped everything, ran over, we stood in the back of Avery Fisher, and the film I was playing with was Weekend. Yeah, a lot of blood (laughs) everywhere. (laughs) And then finally finally i was here with a feature in 1973 with mean streets and uh, you know that was the defining moment um and obviously meant so much to me and my parents um there is that moment that right there somewhere in the center we were seated when the curtains went up and the picture started and we realized oh my god people have to see this and uh, <laughs> my parents were stunned you know and um and they they kind of knew my mother because uh, she would come around to some of the press screenings every now and then, and because uh, I had a couple of the short student films there. So a lot of the kids who were running around who would you know with tape recorders and stuff, they kind of knew her. Uh, and so after the film was over, um, we went out into the lobby, and there was a lot of excitement. A lot of people come around with cameras and people running around. And my mother um, was behind me, and uh, she was stunned. My father was kind of ashen, um, and. Uh, people were going up to her and saying, Mrs. Mrs. Scorsese, what do you think of your your son's film? She goes, I just want you to know, we never use that word in the house. (laughs) And she went up to his person. I don't know where he got that. I don't know where he got it. We don't talk like that in the house, which is true. (laughs) It was very true. (laughs) So she was like, oh, my God, I never... Uh, A year later, uh, counterbalancing that uh, impression that uh, so concerned my mother uh, the documentary of uh, i made on them called italian american was shown here i was not able to be here uh, but they were um and over the years whenever you know whenever i come here to um do talks or to present screenings of some of my own pictures or of titles that were restored from the uh, film foundation and from the world cinema project i always feel like um you know coming back to a place that's a sanctuary of cinema a temple of cinema. And I I know that when I enter this space, film, cinema will be protected because that's been your mission right from the start. You've never never really varied from that. The great thing about this thing too is no awards. There was no competition. It was a festival of festivals, you see. That was amazing. And there was uh, no uh, marketplace. You know, we hope the pictures got distributed, yeah, but it was really no marketplace, and certainly no chasing after the next big thing, Um, and no content. Uh, I don't understand. I mean, that word really, really is very popular now, and the whole concept, people, intelligent people are saying, yeah, there's content. What content? What are you talking about? (laughs) That's a show, that's a thing, that's an animated, I don't know if you mean content. And as far as I'm concerned, it's really negative, you know, in its connotation. It has content, it has no place in the house of cinema. And I. I <laughs> so I want to thank you for inviting me to, to close this, um, this anniversary tribute, and I want to thank you for being there all these years, and sticking to the mission and for protecting the precious organism this world of this world that we call cinema so thank you and good night
3: you've been listening to the film at Lincoln Center podcast our opening music is by steelism you can subscribe on itunes and stitcher Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, Film at Lincoln Center presents year round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org. F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C Film at Lincoln Center. Film lives here.